Welcome to Sacred Nature Radio, a show that bridges science and spirituality, ancient and modern, eastern and western. It is my intention to fertilize minds for the emergence of an integral and regenerative paradigm where human potential can expand in creative synergy. Join our noetic polity on Patreon and social media. Your unique voice and contribution is key to our collective transformation. I'm your host, the Reverend David Campbell, and this is Sacred Nature Radio, the podcast that explores the spiritual nature of ecology and the ecological nature of spirit. This episode is a wonderful and timely conversation that I had with Sean Padraig O'Donoghue. We spoke about a week before the winter solstice and great mutation of 2020. Sean lives in the mountains of western Maine. He is an herbalist, writer, and teacher, as well as an initiated priest in two traditions. I was fascinated by his insightful essay, The Nature of the Beast, which I found on the Cascadia Vortex Facebook group, a group that's hosted by our mutual friend, Mitch Stargrove, whom I hope to have on the show before too long. His previous winter solstice meditation, Winterborn, is also quite relevant to our conversation, as the two works are connected, both implicitly and explicitly. Look for links to Sean's essays, website, and current course offerings in the show notes. Sean currently has an online herbal course in conjunction with Matthew Wood called Holistic Pharmacology for Herbalists. Stay tuned for my reading of his essay, The Nature of the Beast, at the end of the episode. I hope you find our conversation as inspiring and heartwarming as I did in these cold depths of pandemic winter. Hey, Sean, welcome to Sacred Nature Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you um, because when I read, you know, your poem or essay, I'm not sure, do you consider it one or the other? Um, they all sort of blend together, although I guess it's more in the essay direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the nature of the beast. What a, it was very cool. And then that led me to read also your other one called Winterborn, which I thought was amazing as well. And both are definitely appropriate for our moment in time, I think. Yeah. Cool. So I guess um, maybe we can start with a little bit of your background. I was poking around your website a little bit. It seems like you have a lot of cool interests. Yeah, a whole a whole lot of different things weave together to make the fabric of my work, because I guess is ultimately true of everyone. But um, my first career was in political activism, um, working primarily on confronting US militarism, um, and eventually focusing some time on what the US was doing in Latin America. And really having a chance to reconnect with some of my innate animism as I came into contact with indigenous cultures there that were under the boot of the quote unquote drug war. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I found that I was 
kind of throwing myself up against the same walls <laughs> over, right. over and over again, expecting a different result. And something needed to give. And um, I was also at a point where my physical health was in pretty severe deterioration. And the plants kind of came and in and worked through the cracks to um, transform me and help me come more into the fullness of my being at the same time that I was moving deeper down a pagan path. So it all wove together. And then, you know, once upon a time, I was immersed in the world of critical theory. And so that um, all finds its, finds its way, uh, finds its way in. And I think uh, gave me some very important tools for discernment and critique. Yeah, definitely. And um, I felt like when I was reading those two poetic essays, I'll call them of yours, that it was you, you put, you almost like created in like a Jungian sense, like archetypes, Im imagistic archetypes to express some things that I, I can totally, I've been feeling in my own sort of reflection on, on this time in history as well. Um, and I just thought like the idea of using the beast, I, I felt like it was kind of that archetype of the shadow but also, you know, those sort of, like you talk about the wildness within us, but the wildness without us that we're trying to negotiate, but yeah, people take their different um, tacts in dealing with that and trying to remain quote unquote civilized. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess, so before your political work were did you have a spiritual path you were working with or did it kind of come through that time period for you? Well, it's always been deeply intertwined. My political work began in elementary school. So, um, and I grew up Catholic, uh, which I had a complex relationship with. On the one hand, I learned a lot about ritual technology mm first in that world. And um, I remember as a very young child sort of understanding the container that was being created during the mass, but understanding at a very literal level of thinking that the church was ascending into heaven and the light from behind the altar was the filtered light of the divine. And I got really worried about the people who would leave after communion before the mass was over and what's going to happen when you're <laughs> in the midst of the space and then you leave before... Um, before it's changed. So when I came around to pagan practices and working with casting a circle, it was very familiar to me and I understood where that early anxiety came from. Mm. But at the same time, um, I feel like there's always been an animism for me. Um, I spent a lot of time in the swamp and forest behind my parents' house, which was very much alive with creatures of this world and the other world. And um, so that was always intention. I left, mm -hmm. the, uh, left the Catholic Church for the first time in high school over its hypocrisy, but um, 
ultimately it was uh, the Pope's condemnation of deep ecology that was the tipping point for me. And then oh. I was Catholic a second time in my 20s when mm. I found uh, the radical Catholics because I had always com complained about, well, why does the church care so much about what people are doing with their own bodies and so little about war and poverty? And then when I found the people who were actually living in those ways uh, and actually confronting um, systems of oppression, I needed to give it another try, but eventually found that it didn't fit the shape of my spirit. And I asked that sort of classic theological question about um, if there's one God who's all loving and omnipotent and um, omniscient and omnipresent, why would that God want us to engage in voluntary suffering to, to bring about the transmutation, to bring the, the final liberation, which is what we were looking at with our mingling of Marx and the Bible. And my mentor at the time um, said, um, well, you need to go pray. And so I did, but my prayer involved um, a couple hits of acid and um, and staring at the fire in the wood stove and a uh, vision of Bridget telling mm. me that there was a different way to be a priest in this world. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think uh, our spiritual lives have taken similar paths. Uh, mm. I grew up Catholic as well. And eventually just, I don't know, partially through study and partially through experience kind of came into connecting to my Gaelic roots or Celtic roots and, and the, yeah, the way that they frame the spirit realm just felt a lot more natural to me. Um, yeah. And there are also ways in which it came full circle when, uh, uh, or perhaps not full circle, but where I was able to, after my break from the church, understand a lot more about what, what uh, was in my background and the things like uh, my dad, whenever someone is sick, brings holy water from the shrine of Our Lady of Knock to the hospital. Mm. And when I was finally able to be at some of the sacred wells in the west of Ireland and see the unbroken continuity of practice from the Neolithic with slightly different ideological frameworks put over it, I understood that actually that was a part of the living tradition passed down mm -hmm. to me. It also explained why my grandfather brought me a kit for performing the last rites when I was seven years old. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. What a powerful gift. Yeah. Do you still have that? Unfortunately, I don't. Um, when I was in my teenage anger against the church, I hid it somewhere and retrieved. <laughs> 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 well, maybe it'll reemerge when it's ready or when you're ready for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So many interesting threads. Um, yeah. I guess then, so you had that vision of Brigitte. Yeah. And um, so it sounds like you were familiar with at least some of the Gaelic 
mythology at that point. So I guess what drew you into it? Yeah, well, in some ways, uh, the seeds were planted very early. I, one of my childhood obsessions was Irish history and folklore. And so I was immersed in everything and often recognizing things that felt more like home to me, but always trying to then reframe them in um, a Catholic framework, which, you know, our ancestors had a good couple centuries of practice with, so yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that hard to do. Uh, but in particular, I remember um, reading, pulling Yeats off my mother's shelf when I was very young and first reading um, The Stolen Child and recognizing that, yes, there was, there was this other world that I felt more connected with than I did with suburban Massachusetts of the 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then um, reading The Song of the Wandering Angus and recognizing in Yeats' description of the fire in the head, um, the passion that really wanted to come through me and um, that sense that I would indeed wander over hollow lands and hilly lands until I was old and gray um, mm. in pursuit of that vision. Yeah, awesome. So it sounds like you've spent some time possibly in Ireland and Scotland? I haven't been to Scotland yet. Oh. Just, um, just some brief time in uh, the west of Ireland um, in Clare and Kerry, but um, felt a deep sense of home that I didn't mm -hmm. know I would feel in any physical place in this world. And also found that um, I was more at ease with people there, that um, I could, by spiraling and sideways ways of talking were <laughs> more recognizable. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved the interactions where there would be some where I encounter someone who could both tell that we had a sense of something other than the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And there would be the kind of veiled questions <laughs> back and forth for a few minutes. And then when we each realized that the other one passed the test, <laughs> then the opening further. Awesome. Very cool. Did you have, um, I guess, any early life experiences with, you know, spirit contact and things like that, that kind of solidified in your mind for you that there's some reality to this, you know, beyond just the ideas, you know, then in mythology and things? Absolutely. Well, uh, going back to, um, the first few months of my life, um, or I guess the first year of my life, uh, when my great-grandmother uh, on my mother's side died on Christmas Eve, the night before she was supposed to meet me. And then my mother witnessed her moving the crib across the room three months later. Oh. And um, she came from a long line of women who had the sight. So that was very present for me. 
But I also, whenever I was out in the swamp, there would always be the beings that were just outside my peripheral vision Mm. with a shimmering presence who I immediately recognized. And then I had the interesting experience in high school of briefly delving into ritual um, without understanding that not everybody else was taking everything quite as seriously. And we, um, there was a teacher at our school who convened the Council of All Beings uh, ritual that comes from the work of John Seed and Joanna Macy, where someone is speaking on behalf of another being. And for most of the people in the room, that was an imag- a purely imagined experience. Mm-hmm. But I opened myself up and there was a very unhappy wolf who mm-hmm. came in and stayed with me um, well into the night until um, I vaguely remembered reading about Sage and Castaneda and um, not really knowing the distinctions. Although it's funny because now that I look at it, the distinctions amongst the Salvia genus aren't really as strong as we think they are. Yeah. Pulled some of the, um, the Sage out of the spice cabinet in my, in my uh, parents' kitchen and um, sprinkled it over myself and then was able to come back more fully to myself. But um, that was always there. Although there was a long time that I tried to push it down under a more rationalist framework in order to try to have some place in a culture where intellectualism was really the closest I could come to finding a place to fit. Right. Yeah, working with the mind, but framing it as objects. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've been doing more thinking lately about how, you know, how do we distinguish what's imagination? I mean, in many ways, our experience, even our immediate present reality is a form of imagination. Um, Right. So it's kind of like when people say, you know, the spirit world's imaginary. It's like, well, it does come to us as images. They are experienced, you know, subjectively, but so is everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And as an autistic person who figured out my neurobiology pretty late in life, um, I've had a whole lot of experience of my sensory gating processes being really different than those of anyone around me that I think um, forced me to understand uh, the degree to which we're all working through different filters from an early age. Right. Assuming there is something objective out there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, I always think that's an interesting assumption. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because it's, uh, you know, even in physics, they're starting to question fundamentally the consistency of what what is real and why consciousness has the effect on it that it does. So maybe, you know, imagination is not a bad model. (laughs) It's not. Although I do find that um, within... Westernized versions of Buddhist and 
uh, in Hindu perspectives and within um, so much New Age thinking, there tends to be that there tends to be the well, there is no objective, therefore we will just treat everything as abstraction <laughs> that breaks down um, the relational sense. And so I work with a kind of provisional sense of material reality in order to be able to be more in relation with embodiment and with the living world, because I feel like um, that, le that level of abstraction within a culture that is still reeling from the wounds of being torn from land and torn from embodiment by capitalism, um, there's an importance to being with what is alive and physically present in our worlds. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Some, in some sense, the, the continuity, the, and like you said, the relationality, that's, I agree. That's very important. And it is, it is, uh, when I say imagination, I don't mean it in the, personal like it's confined to my mind sense i mean it's oh, like absolutely yeah we're sharing in it <laughs> right <laughs> i don't know who's doing it exactly or what but <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i use the word differently depending on how fluent and young my um <laughs> my audience is right yeah and actually so i'm gonna pull up the nature of the beast here. Cause you start with that great Yates quote, what rough beast slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And, um, and I really felt like the way you describe it. And I, and I reread the Yates poem today just to remind myself of how he framed it. And I felt like, of course, his framing you know, had a lot more to do with the world war and how he had a very sort of, there's definitely a heavy darkness over it, you know, a little yeah. bit of a, a fear of, of what's happening of, of civilization, maybe totally, you know, coming apart at the seams. Um, and I like how you acknowledge that, but then, sort of remind us that that's actually sort of the root of our vital force almost. That's the root of our health if we allow it to be. Yeah. Um, is that that energy that we can often relegate to the shadow because it's hard to contextualize in a modern world, but it's that wildness within us. I don't know, is there anything in particular that you'd like to share about how you came to that image and, and some of those insights? Yeah, well, I feel like the more we relegate the beast to the shadow, um, the more it becomes the caged and wounded animal and the more it ends up meeting the expectations of our projections initially. Mm. And it's interesting too, I think about there's a, 
not sure what you'd call it, almost a historical pun in um, the opposition between Yeats and Crowley. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Yeats was quite literally setting himself, well, not literally, but well, literal and metaphorical gets so fluid in these realms. But uh, Yeats was, in a certain sense, very much setting himself against the self-proclaimed beast within uh, the world of occult politics of the time. And um, there's much to be learned from um, each direction in which yeah. things might be taken. But um, ultimately, um, yeah, for me, it came out of having waged a lifetime war against, or against embodiment that I then flipped into a journey toward embodied wildness. Um, and looking uh, at the violence I had done to my own being and the way in which that forces a certain level of disconnection and then paralleling it to uh, the sense I had from very early in, in life of the violence we're doing against the living world. Um, and then looking at this moment that we're in of dismantling and unraveling and chaos in both its conventional and unconventional senses. And here we are at this moment where global capitalism seemed triumphant and increasingly is all of its systems of control and all of its systems of operation are breaking down um, in the face of this virus, this uh, zoogenic virus mm. that um, entered the human population through human pushing deeper into the wild um, and then utilized all of um, the matrices of economic connection that we created to transmit itself around the world and began to really break down those economies at the same time that climate change and the normalization of disaster um, has become um, something that is transforming all of our lives. Uh, I have a, my sister lives in Haines, Alaska, and their town has been peeking out from horrific mudslides and rock slides as a result of um, the melting north. Wow. And so looking at those horrific realities, but then looking also at the fact that all of these horrors um, have been present, but just are coming closer to home for us now. Um, I think about Walter Benjamin's insight that um, 
the state of emergency is not the exception, but the rule. Mm -hmm. And so, and not only in coming to terms with a different understanding of that state of emergency, can we stake a meaningful and coherent position. And so looking at that and looking at, okay, as this breaks down, what's beneath it? And thinking mm -hmm. about um, all of our cities are built on the graveyards of forests and meadows and deserts and swamps. And what's the life there that wants to return? And how is that related to what really wants to return in us? And there, um, my uh, murdered neighbor, Wilhelm Reich, has been a really important uh, guide in looking at the fact that there is this very real force that wants to move through us, this life that wants to move through us. And towards the end of his life, Reich was seeing that that life actually moved through everything, creating the same patterns, whether they're patterns in our biology or patterns in the structure of a galaxy. And um, I think he would not have been at all surprised to see the maps, the maps of galactic distribution that look like synaptic networks mm. are now emerging. But ultimately, I think uh, one of um, the big takeaways from Reich is that fascism lives within our fascists. The more we hold ourselves in a rigid physicality, the more we enter into a rigid mentality that then seeks to impose itself on the world around us. And so yeah. that surrender of that tension and control um, into that space where life is allowed to move, I think is the possibility we have in our own lives and in the life of this world. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I think in this day and age too of identity politics, I think Wilhelm Reich is a great medicine uh, yeah. to remind us that identities are merely character armor that right. hold us back. They're not, Absolutely. they are not the thing that we should aspire toward, but the thing that we should surrender. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, social categories are important to understand in terms of understanding the dynamics of systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. But when we essentialize them, that's where we get in trouble. And I often feel like, um, there's no moral equivalence between the way in which the far right essentializes and weaponizes those aspects of identity and the ways that those parts that the contemporary left does. But there is a continuity between them and an equal investment in the reality of those categories. Um, and those categories are real in that they describe elements of social interaction that we need to dismantle and transform, but um, not in the sense of they're actually giving us useful information about being in the world. And I find that they also often end up then reducing things a lot to this strange calculus that in some ways is familiar to me from my Catholic days when 
in when I was involved in uh, the radical Catholic pacifist movement, we would ask questions like, what action can we take that's commensurate to the suffering of the Iraqi people? Which to me at the time was the most meaningful question possible to me. And right now is absurd to me. We were asking that question at the peak of deaths from the US imposed sanctions in Iraq and nothing I could do could make me be 2,500 children dying of leukemia and dysentery every month. Um, that kind of moral economics just doesn't work. And I see that resurfacing in a more secular standpoint with the idea uh, of things like individual reparations. Um, and absolutely, I'm very much in favor of people who have access to wealth and resources, using them strategically to help to aid in people's liberation. But the idea that it is a personal responsibility to absolve oneself of the guilt of white supremacy, rather than a collective responsibility to dismantle those structures and create different ways of living, I think um, really does a disservice to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely also feel that extends um, to what I guess I can call eco-side. <laughs> um, exactly, it's like, you know, the whole idea that like, well, you as an individual should recycle and do and you know buy the right thing and and do the right thing. Well, great, but that's not going to stop you know the bulldozing of the rainforest. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. I mean, I can recycle, and that's not a bad thing. But it doesn't really, like you said, the 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 transaction or the equation doesn't balance out. It's yeah. <laughs> right. I was in high school when uh, Earth Day had its resurgence, and uh, I remember the Earth Day celebrations in my town being paid for by Raytheon and Waste Management. Mm. And they were talking about all the things that we um, naughty suburbanites should be doing uh, in order to be more ecologically virtuous. Um, and sure, yeah, go for it take shorter showers, recycle. Those things aren't meaningless. But um, when Raytheon and Waste Management are telling you to do them, um, maybe you should take a look at who's, what's behind the curtain. Yeah. And, and it becomes, yeah. <laughs> it gets into so many things, but definitely, yeah. I mean, a, a war contractor and uh <laughs> disposal service who it turns out um doesn't recycle much by the way uh, most right. of our recycling apparently ends up either used to be sent to china china doesn't want it anymore so now it's just going to the dump <laughs> right <laughs> like oh recycle you mean virtue signal while still throwing things away <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh yeah but I do feel like there, the hope that I feel is that, sure, I almost feel like saying, like, sure, capitalism, you win, right? Like, or whatever, even capitalism to me is, like, not the right word almost for it, because it's kind of like, it's post-imperial capital, like, global capital 
power structuring, you know, right. of the world. It's it's not a, it's not simply like transactions and investments. Like that there's a way in which I can look at that form of basic capitalism and say, well, that could be a good thing for people, you know. And and in some ways capitalism does help lift people out of poverty. But then you look at the 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 institutionalization on a global scale and how debt is managed to as a form of imperial and colonial control in a supposedly post-imperial and colonial world. And it starts to look pretty nasty. But it's Yeah. Yeah, I definitely I definitely think that commerce can be commerce and exchange can be beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And um you know I think about um the cosmopolitan city that Viking Dublin was um, mm. with, uh, with uh, spiritual pluralism and an exchange of people and goods and ideas from across Europe and Middle East, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, but when I speak of capitalism, um, I speak of a system that had its birth with the enclosures, um, with the violently separating people from the land in England and with um, Cromwell's genocide in Ireland as the predecessor to what would be carried out on a much larger, more destructive scale in the Americas and a system that was built on that infusion of um, stolen wealth that was made invisible on the books that Marx referred to as primitive accumulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. And I think that it is sort of the uh, grandchild or, or child of the imperial system that inherits all of its wealth and says like, well, what do you want me to do? I just, you know, won basically. Right. Yeah. But I do think that ultimately it's like, it's so hubristic that I can't imagine that at its point of what it seemed, you know, it feels like it thinks it's, it's at its moment of total control, right? Like, right. Like it's reached its apogee, but yeah. I say, so be it. So at, right. the, at your climax, you only have down ahead of you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least when you're running the energy, the, way that it does <laughs> yeah it's like okay so the rest of us are gonna try to figure out what we're gonna do in your aftermath <laughs> exactly and that's that's what gives me hope is like there's a lot of people working on great projects and i hope to just be among them and i think you're definitely one of them partially it's it's bringing about the awareness um and the work that needs to be done both between people and between humans and the non-human world um, to repair some of those relationships and allow for the possibility of mutual thriving. Um, because there's gotta be something, you know, some, it's not that I think we can bring about some utopia, but it's clearly the system we're in is dysfunctional for an ever increasing number of people. And that, yeah can't be stabilized for, I can't imagine it remaining stable for all that much longer. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, in a lot of ways, our 
modern era and certainly um, our nation and our economy began with taking out the false kings mm. and reinvesting uh, that um, reinvesting sovereignty in those we considered to be people right <laughs> um, at an individual level. But in that, losing where that sovereignty of the king initially came from, that um, all of the oldest models of sovereignty involve a wedding to the land and the king as interpreter of the will of the land and speaker of the living law rather than lawgiver and lawmaker. And of course, that first broke down with the corruption of kings. Mm -hmm. But then rather than reaching further back to understand the essence of what the proper ecological function of sovereignty was, um, it became, okay, uh, we are removing the one autocrat who's in charge of everyone and making everyone into individual autocrats. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that um, the healing that's required is no, I don't. I don't want to see us investing sovereignty over others in individuals. But I do mm -hmm. think that to the extent that we can continue to constitute ourselves as individuals and consider to, con to continue to consider that individual individuality sovereign, that sovereignty has to arise from that same wedding to the living world. And so as things fall apart around us, um, we are at that wedding altar. And I actually think in a lot of ways, some of the um, Thelemite ways of talking about this, although they're not my, my tradition, um, really fit a lot of what we're experiencing because we have, um, Babylon as that erotic destructive force that mm -hmm. tears apart civilization and who is the bride of chaos, which is embodied by the beast. And so as we approach that wedding altar, um, that scarlet woman is the bride awaiting each of us. Mm -hmm. And it is that true animal that true beast within us that needs to be reintegrated in order for that wedding to be complete and be consummate. And of course, um, of course, these are clumsy ways of speaking of things because binary gender um, gets projected onto those because of the cultural framework they come from. But uh, there is an essential truth. And I feel like, um, yeah, when I speak about the nature of the beast, it the nature of what beast shows up to wed that force really determine, is really determined by the way in which we approach our own wildness. If we make an enemy of our wildness, we make a monster of our wildness, mm -hmm. what meets, uh, what meets the end of the world as we know it will be monstrous. 
Mm-hmm. But if instead we understand it as the caged animal that's frightened, that needs to come into safety and coherence and connection to remember its nature and go on its wobbly legs into freedom, then uh, this can be beautiful beyond our beyond our previous imaginings. Yeah, and and I loved your exploration, which you just gave a little bit a peek of of sovereignty in in the winter winterborn uh, poetic essay. I think there was the way you frame it is is really beautiful because I agree with you completely that there is a little bit of this sort of equation of power with tyranny in yeah. in our modern time and or especially in the postmodern say uh, frame. And while that is one possible outcome, you know, that autocratic, tyrannical king or monarch is is the corruption. It's not it's it's not what we meant to give power. It's right. it's not it doesn't have legitimate power ultimately because it undermines itself in the long term. Yeah. Um and like you said, because because it doesn't acknowledge the land, or it's almost as if it's like it's the groom who scorned the wife or the bride, right. say, right? And so it's still going to be married to it, whether right. it likes that or not, but it's just going to have now a scorned bride to deal with. And I think that's that's where we're at, is like the natural world is not <laughs> taking it anymore. You know, like you said, like disasters are becoming normalized because they're so commonplace and ultimately until we're well at the point it'll only turn around at the point where we can admit to ourselves that we are wedded to the natural world yeah. that we don't have any way out of that you know yeah. yeah and i feel like another operative myth here is the fisher king who is perilously wounded but refuses to engage the nature of the wound and Mm -hmm. refuses to engage the nature of the medicine. And so sits at the edge of the water while everything around him turns into a wasteland. When, depending on the version of the story, the only thing necessary for that transformation would be for him to either ask, what is the nature of the wound? Or whom does the grail serve? And then then that blockage that was keeping life from flowing through him would be restored. And through the body of the king, the body of the land is restored. But he refuses to either live or die. You know, if he were to allow himself to bleed, his blood would feed the land. If he were to allow himself to heal, his life would heal the land. But in the refusal, um, the natural economy of sex and death breaks down and what's withheld um, begins to cause everything around it to wither. Yeah, it's a great allegory. Definitely 
definitely um, puts into context the need for quote unquote shadow work. Yeah. And facing like, I think you quoted also Steven Buhner. Yeah. And I, one of his quotes that I love, I can't remember it exactly, but it's something about how, when you first come into contact or maybe communion with the natural world, expect it to be extremely painful to be something where you're going to have a rush of just suffering and torment because that is the state of the natural world. And until you are willing to feel the depth of that pain, um, you can't have real contact. Yeah. When I remember when I first read Buhner's words about when you eat the wild, it will transform you and your hair will grow shaggy and the, your suit of clothes will no longer fit and your speech will be wild and poetic and there will be a strange gleam in your eye. And I thought it beautiful and I took it as metaphor at one level, but then I engaged as well. And then a year later I met him and at the beginning of his workshop, he was speaking those words and he looked at me and I thought, oh, you bastard. It happened. <laughs> it wasn't the metaphor. <laughs> you didn't warn me, except of course he does. <laughs> he tells you that none of this is metaphor and that he's, he puts straight right out there that as soon as he, when you engage this way of being and this way of seeing, everything will transform. Uh, like when the fairy queen gives Thomas the Rhymer the taste, uh, the taste of the apple that gives him the tongue that will not lie. Um, but we never know what that means until we're at the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I think about... Um, Babylon said to Jack Parsons, thou shalt complete the black pilgrimage, but shall not be thou that returns. And whenever we engage in actually connecting with life moving through us and life moving around us, um, first of all, in order to do so, we have to cross the abyss of dissociation and terror that um, we've internalized. Mm. But secondly, um, who we were gets dismantled in the pro- and dismembered in the process. And who we are emerges um, forever transformed. And dangerous and contagious in that transformation because the more that we embody that, the more our presence invites that wildness that's alive within others to come forward, Um, which can either bring liberation or terror, (laughs) depending on how people choose to view it and approach it. Right. But yeah, I I think that's the thing is if it does, you know, bring up terror for someone it's it's because it's so foreign to them within themselves you know that they're they have a a caged and wounded animal that they're afraid of it's not 
it's like, you know, you're, you're sort of say walking your well-trained Husky and they're afraid of the wounded wolf that they have in their basement, you know? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So they see the Husky and they're terrified because they were, they remember what they have to deal with. Yeah. I spent 13 years with a Husky and when, um, a Husky and, um, a disheveled wild creature eating uh, bits of plants um, would appear on the trail. It was always interesting seeing what people's response would be. Yeah, I think, again, is it a metaphor? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that about you, but of course that was the image that came to my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's like everything and nothing is metaphor. Um, Yeah. I feel like what we call the literal is the colonial metaphor we attempt to place on everything. But um, Mananan looks out on the sea and where we see rolling waves, he sees a field of wildflowers. But if you hold the silver branch that he hands to you, you'll see that as well. Yeah. Uh, I actually... You know, I've had several times where I've noticed the rolling of the of a large body of water, say, whether it's a large river or a lake or an ocean. And when you kind of let it all come in at once, rather than looking at one spot, there is something majestic. And you can see, uh, I actually put it to my, my fiance recently, I was saying how it's like, it's almost like a, a perfect metaphor and maybe not a metaphor for how you can see the spirit realm interacting with the physical realm. Right. It's like being able to see the wind on the water. Yeah. Because it's not that you're seeing the wind, but if you're able to zoom out and see the whole water, then you see what's going on in the wind. Yeah. And it's complex, but it has patterns, right? Right. But until you zoom out, you just see a single wave and it, sure, you might be able to tell its direction, its height, but it's just a wave. It's like, I guess it's like the forest from the trees as well. Like, Absolutely. When you see the whole thing, there's a, a whole nother layer of information in the totality. Right. And it does, it kind of blooms into your mind all at once. <laughs> but it's interesting the way in which that happens, whichever direction you move in, that mm. I think about um, my first experience with psilocybin and being out in the forest and um, knowing nothing about mycorrhizal networks or their existence, but intuiting their existence when I got down on the ground and was looking at the structure of the moss and mm-hmm. understanding the moss as a single organism that was also many organisms and how it was a microcosm of the forest. Right. And um, I feel like when, when we zoom in or zoom out of our usual perceptions, mm-hmm. we get that wholeness more. Maybe that's what it is. It's just breaking out of the um, kind of expectations of something being mundane. (laughs) 
yeah. seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah. So uh, I noticed on your website, you offer um, some consulting or coaching and some courses. Is there anything about that work that you'd like to share? Absolutely. So I'm teaching right now through the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism, um, uh, co-teaching with Matthew, with his founder, Matthew Wood, who um, is really one of the great minds of contemporary Western herbalism. And he works very much in this sort of partially hermetic mystical tradition of Paracelsus and Bohm, uh, interwoven with uh, elements of North American shamanic perspectives. And uh, we've been uh, co-teaching a course on holistic pharmacology where we look at um, molecules or entities too. And mm. what happens when we actually engage molecules uh, as living beings and look at chemistry, not just in terms of what we're finding in in vitro studies, but in what are the patterns that are revealed when we look at particular kinds of molecules showing up across the plant and animal worlds. That's awesome. And, thank you. And in terms of consultations, um, I meet people where they are. And sometimes that looks like a very straightforward physiological herbalism. Sometimes, um, that's more working with uh, bringing ancestor practices and animist practices into someone's life. Um, really, um, I work with um, helping people find those ways of reweaving connection, whether it's bringing the wildness to them in terms of um, the concentrated chemistry of a cedar tree coming in a drop of a tincture or bringing people out into relationship with the wildness around them, even if that's the empty lot in the city where uh, burdock and blackberry are reclaiming uh, what used to be concrete foundation. Mm. And I also have, um, I just finished writing a book that really condenses a lot of my approach called The Forest Reminds Us Who We Are that will be coming out from North Atlantic Press in July. Awesome. Well, that sounds exciting. I'll be looking forward to getting myself a copy of that. Thank you. Awesome. Well, um, is there any questions that I should have asked you? <laughs> Anything you'd like to share? Well, I think the one element that I didn't really bring in here um, was the element of the fairy realm. Mm. Um, and that uh, when we think about the wildness that was driven from the world, um, at whatever level we view them, uh, the earliest Irish stories really speak to that with uh, the, the Dainashi, uh, who are the people of the mounds who went beneath the hollow hills uh, when they were driven there by the onslaught of a civilization that could no longer allow them to be who they were. They were the, before that, the Tuhade, the tribe of the gods who came riding the north wind 
bringing the knowledge of the life of the world to Ireland and weaving musics and medicines and technologies that carried the echoes of water flowing over stone and wind blowing through trees. And when this world became too brutal for them with the onslaught of the invasion of the Galatian Celts from Spain, um, and I think of myself as having ancestors on both sides of that war, mm. um, they uh, chose to withdraw and they went to the mouth of the Boyne to um, the site we now call Newgrange, where Mananan, the son of the ocean, wove, um, wove a spell of concealment that made them invisible and then brought them down into the dark underworld to be closer to the other world well, it's the source of all water and all life. And uh, the late Irish atomist philosopher John Moriarty said that to learn to speak is to learn to say that our river has its source and other world well. And that whatever we may say of the hills or of the stars is a way of saying there are nine hazels that grow over the well and the other world where our river has its source. And that our gift of language is supposed to be that kind of gift of evocation, invocation, and praise. And I feel like a part of that cloak of concealment that Maunan wove is the language of confusion we have that commodifies things and separates us. Mm. And uh, it's interesting when we look at who the dynasty would reach to across history, it was always the poets and the musicians um, who could understand that language and the healers uh, mm -hmm. who would be taught their craft by the other world. Um, and would bring their healing mostly by restoring right relation. And lately it's been interesting to me noticing how much images of Newgrange have been, and stories of Newgrange have been coming up. And I feel like some of the things that are buried are resurfacing. Um, I think a lot about uh, some of the magical technologies that were used during World War II. Uh, Paul Weston's done some brilliant work on the occult battle of Britain. And one of the things he talks about is the very simple, powerful magic that Dion Fortune worked by having people meditate at the same time on particular images of the ancient being of the ancient life of the island of Britain in order to bring it back to life. And it's interesting to me now as we approach a solstice where uh, Newgrange will be all but empty of humans, but human attention will be drawn by a live stream of the beam of the sun piercing through the chamber. Um, I think that there is a great potency in meditating on that site, on those old holy places, on those places where what left the world left. And I've been having um, visions and dreams for a long time now of Mananan standing at the Boyne, 
calling for his people's return, which I think is a return that happens within us through an awakening of what's within us. And so I want to speak of that. And I also want to um, speak honor to my teachers, my lineage, uh, to Cornelia Benavides, my living teacher who was um, trained and initiated by Victor and Cora Anderson, whose magics reach back through generations of unnamed and unknown people into uh, a very distant past and into, uh, Victor would always say, our religion is the oldest religion and it's the cave paintings come to life. And here again, we see the paid, paid cave, new paid cave paintings coming to new light as the need for this memory comes to life. And um, I've also walked a close path in spirit with um, Victor's spiritual son, uh, Gwydion Pentherwin, who delved deeply into the mystery of the sacred king, um, died very young, as partially, partially in embodiment of the idea that the king died to give life to the land. And um, a lot of my own journey in recent years has been, okay, so this path to sovereignty is perilous. I want mm. to offer myself, but I don't want to die. And um, picking up some of the pieces that he left off and working um, with some of the mythos and some of the beings that he worked with, what's become clear to me is that the king is not necessarily the one who dies for the people on the land. The king is the one who lives for the people on the land. Mm -hmm. And I think um, maybe I'll, and us all by bringing it back to the wild and to the literal beast and to um, wandering in the forests outside my ancestral castle where um, one of my ancestors, Theo Donahue Moore, uh, studied magics of shape-shifting and then disappeared into the waters um, almost a millennium ago and um, praying to understand the nature of claiming sovereignty and showing up truly in the world while standing under an oak and then rounding a corner where there was um, a red deer with antlers as wide as my arm span standing just a few feet from me and are standing together in perfect stillness for a moment. Um, my neither advancing nor retreating and my doing everything I could to just come into the deepest well of my being, um, get out of that fight or flight place where there was a very real danger, this stag could have very easily killed me to protect mm. the herd. Um, but dropping below that and coming into the stillness where he then walked off and circled the rest of the herd three times. And then um, once he had set the boundary 
and knew that I was not a threat, went and lay in repose beneath the tree at the center of the field. And I understood in that moment that the stag wasn't just a majestic symbol of the king and the chieftain for our ancestors. They learned that way of being from the stag and based the structure of the clans on the structure of those herds. And that herd in Killarney is really the last remnant of the Ice Age herds of, um, of red deer to live there. And then coming home and feeling homesick and wandering in the woods in Washington where I was living at the time, singing in Gaelic and hearing the bellow bugle of the elk stag coming back to me in exactly the same voice I had heard from the red deer stag and understanding that it's a way of being, it's a way of living. It's not about the time and place we find ourselves in. It's about how we show up. That's wonderful. Yeah, and and um, that was a beautiful image I think you shared as well in the Winterborn um, work that you did. And um, it's very striking. And I think it's interesting now to get a little of the backstory as well, the question that you had in your mind. Awesome. Well, thank you for this conversation, Sean. Um, I hope it's one of many. <laughs> thank you. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel there's a lot that I have to learn from you because you're a little further down the path and exploring some of these um, ancestral roots and, um, and some of the herbal wisdom that you've that you seem to be sharing. I'm now, I'm interested. I'm like, oh, which course am I going to take? <laughs> Thank you. And I feel like it's more, it's not so much a further down a path as a different bend. Sure. The path, uh, because I feel like I have so much to learn from you. I love the frame framework you bring around quantum physics and around Gebser and around some of these maps that I'm, not as familiar with, but that are immediately recognizable to me as the same phenomena. Well, I appreciate that. And um, I hope that you have a wonderful solstice and, you know, happy holiday and new year. Thank you. You too. All right. Well, farewell for now. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Sean Pedreg O'Donohue. Make sure to join the Sacred Nature Radio community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and especially Patreon. Each episode of this podcast is a culmination of more hours of work than I care to count, and while it is definitely a passion project and a labor of love for me, any support that you show really helps me to keep the fire burning. If you aren't ready to commit to a monetary sacrifice on Patreon, then consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcast or your podcast platform of choice, as these ratings and reviews are the nutrients that entice the algorithmic mycelia to distribute this content further out into the wood wide web. The GoFundMe for Carlos Inyapi Manuyama, whom I interviewed in episode three, is still active and could use some love 
I have already sent Carlos some money for tools and natural fertilizer for his ethnobotanical garden in the Peruvian Amazon, but he needs more capital to turn his modest property into a retreat center that we might be able to visit him at in the near future. He is growing medicinal plants to help keep the local herbal knowledge alive and help heal his neighbors in need. Anything you can contribute is hugely appreciated. The intro and outro music is by Purple Cat as usual, so find them on Spotify or wherever you listen to music and show them some love. That's Purple Cat with two R's and check them out for some smooth jams to chill to. I was planning to put in the song My Pagan Land by Narcilian, but it was interfering with the distribution of the episode, so I'll just put a link in the show notes. The Nature of the Beast by Sean Padraig O'Donoghue What rough beast slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? Yeats's question is tinged with exhilaration and terror. As he wrote, war was tearing society as he knew it apart, both in Ireland and across Europe and the Middle East. It was a prelude to even greater changes to come. We are witnessing many of those changes now as pandemic, climate change, and viral spread of disinformation and paranoia through global communication networks rend apart markets, nation-states, paradigms, ideologies, communities, and lives. Some evolutionary biologists believe that the evolution of the first spine, the skeleton, and the neuromuscular bundles that allow for locomotion then the amygdala, then the brain itself, were driven by the desire for motion. The first imperative of survival, that is to move away from what seems dangerous to us. We keep trying to move away from it unless and until our relation to it changes. Civilization sought to move us further from danger by walling off the outside world. Beyond the boundaries of the first cities were the wild beasts, and the people, the citizenry, thought beastly because of their rejection of the wall that divided them from the wild. But cut off from the wild world, the city could not survive without continual expansion and plunder. So those within the walls declared all who were outside the walls savage, and sought to tame, subjugate, or eradicate them. That walling off became reflected in a new musculoskeletal experience, that of physiological armoring through sustained tension in the muscles and the fascia. The walls of the city are mirrored in the walls of tension we create to contain the beast within us and hold off the beastly in the world around us. This tension walls us off from our own senses and drives us into the state Stephen Buhner calls dissociated mentation, in which we attempt to map the world with our left frontal cortex alone and impose order on the world around us. When attempts to create order from chaos are engaged in fluid ways in which the shape of the order shifts according to the feedback gained from direct sensory input from inner and outer worlds, the tension is a creative tension that finds its resolution in art, poetry, music, dance, 
true science, and magic. When they are approached in rigid ways, they result in violence to ourselves and each other as we try to force conformity to a detached and distorted perception of the ideal. Dr. Wilhelm Reich observed and wrote about this as he was trying to understand the rise of fascism in Europe and its deep historical and cultural roots. He wrote, The character structure of modern man who reproduces a 6,000-year-old patriarchal authoritarian culture is typified by characterological armoring against his inner nature and against the social misery which surrounds him. This characterological armoring of the character is the basis of isolation, indigence, craving for authority, fear of responsibility, mystic longing, sexual misery, and neurotically impotent rebelliousness. For the crime of having these insights, he was first denounced by his fellow students of Sigmund Freud, then had to flee fascism, then was cast out of the Communist Party for excessive anti-fascism and suspect ideas about the healing power of pleasure, and finally had his books burned by the U.S. government and died in federal prison. He is now buried less than a mile up the road from me. Much of our political discourse today reflects the tension between liberal desires to tame and assimilate what is wild or strange, and conservative desires to contain, subjugate, or eradicate either the strangeness or the stranger. From this desire, archons arise. Idealized, abstracted, external, absolute authorities given life by people's devotion. The liberal embraces the state and civil society and academia. The conservatives embrace the market and the church and the military. Both, of course, also embrace the archons of their oppositions in secret. The structures of governance that arise from these fearful devotions are a twisted and degraded replacement of the true sovereignty that arises from the wedding of the king to the land whose natural antecedent in today's world would be our own marriage to the land. See my essay, Winterborn. But order in the living world is fluid and dynamic, not fixed and rigid. The wild will always disrupt the existing order, as it has this year with plague and storm and fire. So too will flashes of the divine, which by its very nature dissolves boundaries and transgresses laws too small to contain its infinity. The wild and the divine are not enemies of the rational and the human. They seek not to destroy, but to authentically integrate the wild moving from below, trying to invite the human to loosen its constriction and dance, the divine working from above, trying to help the human see beyond the boundaries of the beliefs that shape its perceptions. They seek to embrace the human, but the dissociated part of the human is afraid, so it flees from them or fights them. When the real world cracks our ideological armor, some take it as an opportunity to slip the cage and stumble awkwardly into freedom on legs wobbly from disuse, but others glue the armor back together, which breeds psychosis in its traditional sense 
of an internally consistent but externally false vision of the world. Both individual and collective psychosis amplify the virtue and power of the archon they embrace and the evil and power of the beast they oppose, heightening the stakes of the cosmological battle between the two, and reinterpreting real-world events in increasingly strange terms to fit their failing and collapsing totalizing vision. The right lurches toward fascism, both orthodox and unorthodox religious movements gravitate toward fundamentalism. A left disappointed by the masses' lack of enthusiasm for its utopian vision fetishizes the guillotine and unconsciously replicates the historical examples of Stalinist purges and Maoist cultural revolution, first with social sanctions and then with more direct violence. Hippies and New Agers get swept up in a strange amalgamation of all of the above. Everyone awaits victory in the final battle. None of them are ready to meet the beast they see coming with compassion or curiosity. But what if the beast really is a beast? Its roughness, its wildness, its beastliness, its animality. What if it is our own collective caged animal self? seeking to slip its bonds and become part of the living world again. It is through the authentic pleasure of our animal selves that we are able to experience our own infinity and divinity, and the infinity and divinity of everyone and everything around us, in ways that the thought and language can never fully describe. But those judgments which our minds place on our animal selves imbue them with the shame, fear, and guilt which are fed life force every time we repeat those judgments, cursing our own bodies and the body of the world. We lock away the wild and in doing so separate ourselves from the divine and from each other. When the wild again awakens within us, at first it is like a caged beast breaking free that remembers its pain and its terror before it remembers its magnificence. How can we approach it? The same way we would approach a frightened animal. Think of a frightened dog. If you run, it will chase you. If you fight, it will bite you. If you are rigid and afraid, being met by fear, it will amplify the dog's fear. But if you let go of your tension, get down close to the ground, and speak in low, soft tones, Curiosity will slowly replace fear, and affection will arise from the curiosity. So it is with the wildness moving within us, and the wildness moving in those around us. This wildness is the rough beast that slouches toward Bethlehem to be born as we approach a winter solstice that will bring generous Jupiter and Saturn, keeper of cosmic time, together as one bright, blazing star in our sky. How we meet that beast will determine the nature of the meeting. Let us meet it with love.